And do not pass judgment, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you shall not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. For whatever measure you deal out to others, it will, will be dealt to you in return. Well, we must be merciful toward people. But then he says, do not pass judgment, and you will not be judged. Don't condemn, and you won't be condemned. If you pardon, then others will pardon you. And when they do pardon you, and when they do treat you well in response, it will be uh, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. They will pour into your lap. So the kind of generosity and graciousness we offer to others, that will be given to us in return. That's the point he is trying to make. And as he says in 38, for whatever measure you deal out to others, it will be dealt to you in return. This is true both spiritually and physically. Uh, uh, in Ecclesiastes 11.1, 1, it says, Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, and you will find it after many days. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, and it will come back to you many days later. When he announced to the rich young ruler that he should give up everything he owned and follow him, and he walked away grieved, then Peter and the disciples are wondering, how can people be saved? And Jesus says, with men it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then he says, whoever has left houses and wife and brothers and sisters for the sake of the kingdom of God shall receive many times more in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. So, th this principle of being kind and generous and forgiving towards other people is what he's stressing, so that we also may manifest by that that we are truly disciples of Christ, and we may benefit in this life from the response of others toward us and benefit in the life to come. We will receive eternal life. That's the point he makes here. So now we might naturally ask, how is it that we misjudge people? How is it that we miscondemn people? Or how is it that we fail to pardon people? That's a natural question. In John 7.24, Jesus said, um, When you judge, judge righteously and not by appearance. Do not, when you judge, judge by appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. John 7.24. It can be easy for us just on the appearance of a matter to misjudge a matter. We, we might think, well, our, our, our friend is driving this kind of car. How did he get that car? And how much money did he spend on that car? Well, it could be that he did it because he was greedy and he just wanted to show off and whatever. But it could also be that he's just borrowing the car. It might belong to somebody else and that's all he has. And you happen to see him on the day when he's driving this uh, lavish and expensive car. But it's not really his. He's just using it because it was given to him temporarily. Things like that happen well, with possessions. So don't misjudge by appearance. Check into the facts. Investigate thoroughly. And then make a proper and sober, fair-minded decision on the issue. That's one way that we misjudge and should not misjudge. And then if we misjudge other people that way, certainly those people will mis us, misjudge us that way too and accuse us of things that are not true. Another example is when we judge hypocritically. 
When we judge hypocritically, this comes out more clearly in Matthew 7, 1 to 6, which is a parallel passage to this. Matthew 7, 1 to 6, where this is the famous statement that is misquoted, actually, in common uh, parlance and in, in common Christianity. They say, do not judge and you won't be judged. So that becomes a silencer. It becomes something to keep people from making proper assessments of issues and morality, what's right and wrong. But that's not what Jesus meant. He said, first, and we will see that later in verses 42, uh, in 41 and 42, that this is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about not being a hypocrite in that you have your own sins, but you are, and they are more major than the sin that you're trying to bring out of the other brother or to confront in the other brother. Um, you, you, you might be a drunkard, but you notice he's a drunkard and you say something about his drunkenness. You might be a drug addict, but you say something to your friend about drug addiction when you've got to f- get rid of that yourself. Uh, you, you might be viewing pornography, but you could talk to somebody else about pornography and so you're a hypocrite, you know, on and on. You might have an addiction to this or that hobby or sports or whatever, and you point it out to somebody else, but you have that problem. First, repent of it, and then you can help the other person. That's the point. And in that way, also, if we do that, be introspective, then we won't pass judgment rashly on somebody else. And then there's another way in which we uh, pass judgment uh, wrongly and rashly. In Proverbs 18:17, it says... The first to present his case seems just until another comes and examines him. The first to present his case seems just. Somebody will come and, and start whispering in the ear, pss, 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 did you know, and they, did you know so-and-so did this and that, and he said this and that. They'll come whispering to you, and when you first hear something, all of us are naturally, most of the time, we're prone to believing what we hear that first time, and we make a judgment on that third party based on the whisperer when he came and whispered in our ear. Did you know so-and-so did this or said that? When actually that proverb says, the first to come and present his case seems just until another comes and examines him. What about somebody else who was also there and who heard it and who knows the facts and actually can give more facts and then put another color on it? and give it a true color instead of the false color, the first witness falsely, maliciously came and told this third party. So this is the thing we we must not do. We must not pass judgment like that. We must collect the facts. On the basis of two or three witnesses, every fact is to be confirmed. 2 Corinthians 13, 1. Uh, And even in the local church setting, Matthew 18, 15 to 20, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact is to be confirmed. Then we can proceed. Then we can make judgments properly on the matter. So Jesus warns us not to pass wrong judgment. And if we don't and we are generous, we're merciful, we're kind and gracious, then that kind of reciprocity will come back to us and we will benefit from us, from that. Um, Actually, I should mention a fourth kind. Uh, One more, and that's the fourth. When he says here, pardon and you will be pardoned, pardon and you will be pardoned, there is a parable in Matthew chapter 18 that Jesus announced when he was asked uh, how often he should, uh, uh, we should forgive our brother. And then he announced the parable in 1821 and following. This is a parable of a master 
who forgave the debt of his slave. But that slave was a creditor to other slaves. So that first slave is forgiven, but then that slave goes out and he mistreats his fellow slaves and threatens them and he doesn't forgive their debt. So what is the moral of that parable? 1833, uh, uh, no, 1832, 1832. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you entreated me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. God will also hand us over to the torturers, spiritually speaking, that is eternal punishment, if we are not forgiving other people when they come and entreat us. Notice it says in verse 32, because you entreated me. That's a symbol of repentance. That's a symbol of repentance. God in Christ forgave us because we repented. So when somebody has offended us and they repent and come to us and say, please forgive me, then we should forgive. And if we don't forgive, we're not being like the Father and we're not being like Christ. And if we're not going to be like that, then we will be handed over to the torturers. This is why we must pardon. We must pardon and forgive when the uh, offender comes to us and asks us for forgiveness. We must do so. We should be characterized by that. Now, the, the next section, verse 39. Chapter 6 and verse 39. And he also spoke a parable to them. A blind man cannot guide a blind man, can he? Will they not both fall into a pit? He spoke a parable, and actually there's going to be a few parables right here from 39 onward. The first one is on this uh, blind man um, issue. Is, and what are, what are parables? And this will help us understand these and the rest of the parables. A parable is simply an illustration or an example. It's taking something that's earthly and physical and making a comparison to something that's earthly into something that's heavenly. It's understanding spiritual truths by things we know and that things that are common. Things we know that are obvious and common and everybody knows. This is what Jesus does with the parable. He's simply illustrating a spiritual truth. So, we know in the physical realm, if somebody is blind and he guides another blind man, will they not eventually fall into a pit? Of course they will. That's why blind people need help. So, a blind person should never seek help from another blind person to guide him on the path. That should never happen. Blind guides should not guide other blind men. It should never happen. So spiritually, how is it possible for us, since we have a natural blindness, a natural spiritual blindness, is it of any benefit to us if we are listening to somebody who's teaching us and guiding us who is also blind? You would be... You would be uh, 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 at least an ignoramus, if not completely absurd, to, to if you were spiritually blind, 
to go find somebody else who is spiritually blind and say, please lead me and guide me. I want to, I want to see and I want to know the truth. No. He's trying to tell us here that we have to be very careful about who we listen to, who we pay attention to. If we are not careful, we're both going to fall into a pit. This is what happens. This happens every day. It happens every day in, in, the, in the spiritual realm, both within Christianity and outside of Christianity. Blind people follow blind people, and both of them are going to fall into a pit. So the blind man who needs help needs to ask, needs to inquire, needs to use discernment, needs to uh, find out if this teacher is truly a good and godly, biblically consistent teacher. Is he or not? If he's not, then do away with him. Have nothing to do with him anymore and warn other people about him. But if he is a good teacher, then follow him and check everything he says by Scripture to make sure and to confirm to yourself. Just like the Bereans did in Acts 17, 10, and 11. They received the word with great eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. That's what we should do and not follow anybody blindly. Then if we do follow, what should be the result? Verse 40, another parable. Verse 40, a pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. A pupil, the, the student, the disciple, is not above his master and teacher. He's not above when they are first starting their relationship. But what is the goal of the relationship in a proper <coughs> setting? Uh, in, in the modern educational setting, it's not necessarily the case, but if we have the ideal of education in mind, what would that be? It would be that whatever knowledge the teacher has, he wants to dispense it and make sure his students understand it and rise to the same level and even, if possible, to exceed his knowledge and abilities and skills. That's what he wants. He wants him to be fully trained just as he knows the subject. He wants his pupils to know the subject. That's what he's talking about here. This is the kind of training we ought to seek. Everyone after he has been fully trained. So that should be the goal. The goal should not be for the pupil to learn a little bit here and a little bit there. To just to get a, 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 a passing grade, a D, a D grade or a C grade on the final exam and the, and the semester for the course. That should not be his goal. His goal should be to be fully trained and to get an A grade. To do the best that he can to be like his teacher. And in the biblical sense, in the godly sense, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Imitate me as I do Christ. Imitate me as I do Christ. That should be our goal. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Uh, now I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. Well, how are we going to know what the will of God is, the mind of God, by knowing the mind of Christ? We have to know Christ. We need to see everything in the face of Christ. He is our goal. Yes, we will ne never reach perfection in this world, but we're supposed to strive for it because the goal is to progressively become like Christ. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. We're supposed to strive for perfection, though we'll never reach it now, 
we're supposed to strive for it. And day by day, continually reject our sin. Reject sin and be like our master, fully trained. Then 41 to 42, another one. He says, And why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. The point here is not to practice hypocrisy. It's not enough to just say things. We have to actually do things. We actually have to act on it and act first on our behalf. Save our own souls, reject our own sin, and as we do, begin to help others. Save our own soul, sanctify our own soul, and then begin to help others. Whatever the sin is, and there are a variety of sins, Overcome it ourselves, begin to overcome it, and if you find a, a way, a resolution to overcome it, whether that is something, some truth in the Bible or some method in the Bible or some person who is willing to help with that sin, then go uh, pursue that and then go find others to help pursue that same thing, to reject sin, whatever it is. First take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly enough to... Take the speck that is in your brother's eye. So first repent and then help others. And so, hypocrisy is manifested in the fact that there's no change of behavior. Right? A hypocrite does not change his behavior. He speaks well. He has a good talk, but he doesn't walk the way he talks. This is why James says in James chapter 1, James chapter 1, verse 19. Actually, let's begin at verse 18, so we can get the Word of God in here a couple of times. Verse 18. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among His creatures. There He's talking about how He brought us forth by the Word of truth. The Gospel, He saved us. 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But when one looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man shall be blessed in what he does. The hypocrite will hear it and say, I'm going to do it. Let me, let me be snappy about it. Let me be quick and let me go and do it. This is what I want to do. I want to please God. And as John says in 1 John 5, his commandments are not burdensome. When he hears something, he's not looking at it as something that's drudgery. He's not looking at it as, as something that's going to be a, a big load on his back 
that he's never going to be able to do or want to uh, uh, see the fruit of it. No, he's got zeal for it and he wants to do it. Taking his own sin into account first and then he wants to help others. Now another parable, verses 43 and 44. 43 and 44. For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree which produces good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns, nor do they pick grapes from a briar bush. Verse 43. Good trees don't produce bad or rotten fruit, and the bad trees don't produce good fruit, edible fruit. That doesn't happen. So, how are we going to know the difference? Verse 44. For each tree is known by its fruit. He's saying it's possible to know. It's possible to observe. It's possible to inspect, to go out there into the garden or into the field and find out what's good fruit and what's bad fruit. He's saying it's possible. That's why he says each tree is known by its fruit. And... It's so evident that men do not gather figs from thorns. They don't go to the thorn bush to get the figs. They know the difference. It's obvious to them. And then they don't go to uh, pick up grapes from a briar bush. Do they? They don't go pick up grapes from briar bushes. They go to a grapevine. They go there to get the grapes. So since it's evident in the physical realm, again, we're making comparisons between that which is physical and spiritual. He's saying to us, you can know what a good tree is and you can know what a bad tree is. You can know what good fruit is and you can know what bad fruit is. And you need to know. It is known. Well, then verse 45, and then we'll look at a couple of cross-references. How is uh, a way to know what the good fruit is. He uses another kind of analogy, and that is treasure, but he does talk about good treasure. Verse 45, The good man, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. And the evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Now we're talking about people. A good man will utter from his heart good things. But the evil man from his heart will utter evil things. And thereby you can tell from his verbiage which is a good man and which is an evil man. You can tell. You can tell about what he's saying, what he's talking about, what he's teaching, what he's advising and counseling other people. You can know from his speech what's really in his heart. If his heart brings forth filthiness, profanity, cursing, uh, slander, gossip, bitterness, malice, if that's what's coming out of his mouth, then you know he's a rotten tree. He's, a, he's got a rotten heart that's producing rottenness constantly coming out of his mouth. And we can say the same thing with the doctrine. If his doctrine, if his theology is saying, there's no trinity in the Bible, the virgin birth isn't true, Jesus did not rise from the dead, there is no heaven, there's no hell. If he says that uh, you can live just as you please and still go to heaven, it doesn't matter, uh, don't talk about sin, 
don't, don't say that one way is right and the other way is wrong. Don't talk about any of those kinds of things. You're just being too harsh. You're being unloving and legalistic when you say that. So don't do that. It's all about grace anyways, and we're all going to heaven. So when they say those kinds of things too, that's not good treasure coming from the good heart. That's evil treasure coming out of the evil heart. That's why he's saying that. He's saying that because he's an evil man. If he were not an evil man, he would not say that. He would say the opposite. He would show some humility. He would keep quiet and listen. He would say, let me keep quiet and let, and let you talk. Or let me keep quiet and just read the Bible and believe whatever's in the Bible. But they don't do that usually. Okay, now let's look at examples of good trees and bad trees, or good men and bad men. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. 9 to 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Is that plain and evident? Did he say that unrighteous people shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Yes, he said it plainly. And he, then he listed some of the sins. He didn't list a complete list of sins. The Bible never does that. There's always... Sin, sin list. There's different sin lists in the Bible. And the point is just to illustrate specific sins and the often common sins. So that's what he does. We know what a fornicator is. We know what an idolater is. We know what an adulterer is. We know what these sins are. So it should be plain and evident. He says, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. And then in verse 11, such were some of you. That means that the people who practice those sins, the people who justify those sins, the people who love those sins, the people who make excuses and say, no, 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 the Bible doesn't mean that. The Bible doesn't say that. You're misinterpreting the Bible. And the, w w the, the Christians that are saying that this or that sin is wrong, they don't know what they're talking about. That's not what the word means in the original language. You see, if you knew the original language... The word really doesn't mean what you think it means. The translations get it wrong. And there's this modern scholar of late who wrote a book and said that this or that uh, sin in this list is not really what you thought it was. You see, that's the way their arguments go. But that's not the way he's talking here. He says, such were some of you, but then you were washed, sanctified, and justified in Christ and in the Holy Spirit. So, we used to live that way, but we don't live that way anymore. Now, what's the point of making this contrast if you can have your sin and the gospel at the same time? What's the point of making the contrast? Well, who's he talking about here then? Here's another example. Galatians 6. Galatians, uh, sorry, Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. Galatians 5 and verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. 
for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousings, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. There is a warfare, the flesh against the Spirit. And if we are led by the Spirit, we're not under the burden and the curse of the law, the penalty of the law. Then he lists some sins, some common sins, in verses 19 to 21. And just in case our specific sin that we love is not mentioned, he says, and things like these. That's a catch-all phrase to make sure that we're not off the hook. We're not off the hook. We can't look for excuses. And he warned them before and he warns them now that those who practice such things, that's the key word, not those who hate it, those who know it's wrong and seek to overcome them, but those who practice them, who, have, who smother their guilt, who make excuses, who justify it and say, these things are not sins. No, 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 this is not a sin. They shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Then the opposite. If we are following Christ and the Spirit is within us and we are seeking to be filled with His Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He lists several of the fruit of the Spirit. So we can know the contrast. We can know the difference between the one and the other. He hasn't left it unclear. He hasn't been cloudy about it. It's not dark, and it's not as though we need to go to the other side of the world to figure out what he means by walking by the Spirit and walking by the flesh. It's not that complicated. Then one more place. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Somebody may say, well, this is not a gospel issue. Well, I think it's plain and evident already that it is kingdom of God. You can't get into the kingdom of God. That's the gospel. But this passage will make it clear in re reference to that objection. 1 Timothy 1, verse 8. 1 Timothy 1, 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else, we have a catch-all, whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. There we have it. The sound teaching is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. It is a gospel issue. It is. And no one who lives this way, who loves to live this way, practices it and shirks off any guilt he feels about these kinds of sins, he is not living and believing in this true gospel. He is not. 
as he says, is contrary to the sound teaching according to the glorious gospel. Now, these days, let me just highlight one sin, although there are many sins going on, but this one is in our face all the time, and that is homosexuality. They, they put it in our face and laugh all the time. Uh, verse 10 mentions homosexuals. Now, those who promote homosexuality, they say, well, this is talking about non-consensual homosexuality. Non-consensual homosexuality. Or, it's, it's talking about homosexuality between a, uh, adults and children. That's forbidden. But not, but not between two adults. That's not forbidden. They, they come up with schemes like that. But let me ask the question. If that's the case, that it has to do with non-consensual homosexuality, and if it has to do with a difference between adults and children, then does that mean that if we have consensual kidnapping, that that's okay? And if the kidnapping is just adult to adult, then that's okay? It's in the same verse. It's ridiculous. And you can't do that with any of these other sins. It has nothing to do with those issues. It's just another way in which these people wrangle about words and whatever is plain and evident by the text, they make it cloudy and they put it in the mud so that people make excuses for sin. That's what's happening. Then, 1 John, 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, we'll start at verse 7. 1 John 3, 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one, and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Here, the Apostle John tells us, if we practice righteousness, then we are righteous, because Christ and the Father, they are righteous. They are right. He is righteous. And then if we practice sin, we're actually of the devil. We actually belong to the devil and not to God. Because those who are born of God do not practice sin. Verse 9. We don't practice sin if we are born of God. And verse 10. By this the children of God and the ch children of the devil are obvious. He says it's obvious. You can know. If somebody's walking with God and if the other is walking with the devil, you can know this difference. And he gives us two indications in verse 10. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. No practice of righteousness, holiness, sanctification, no desire to re reject wickedness and sin. If that's not evident, then he's not of God. He doesn't belong to God. He's never been born of God. He's not born again. And then the other one, the one who does not love his brother. We have to love our brother. That means that we have to pursue 
a physical and real manifestation of the invisible love of God. The invisible, when I say invisible, I'm alluding to, let me read now 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, start at 19, 419. We love because He first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. If we claim to love God, as it says in verse 20, if someone says, I love God, but he hates his brother, he's a liar. If he doesn't love the one he sees, he doesn't love the one he cannot see and does not see. God. We love God and show it by love of neighbor or love of brother. So these are examples of good fruit, bad fruit. Now, back to Luke chapter 6, and we're at verse 46, 646. One more parable here. And why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? If, if, if Excuse me. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts upon them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock. And when a flood arose, the river burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house upon the ground without any foundation and the river burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. The question in verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Many, many people, the vast majority of those within Christendom, in various denominations and churches, and even in some of the ones that we would call evangelical churches and conservative churches, they have many, many people in them who do not believe the gospel. They say Lord and Lord. They claim the name Christian. They have the name John or Mary, but they have nothing to do with John Mary. They have nothing to do with the name Christ. They want nothing to do with those things. And they say Lord. They will say Lord when they come to worship, sometimes occasionally, sometimes regularly. Whenever they come to worship, they'll say Lord. It'll be in their prayers. It'll be there. Or in their own home, they might say, Lord. They might say, Jesus is Lord. But they don't live accordingly. They don't believe it. As we read in James 1, 18-25, these people, they hear the word, but they have no desire to do it. They just come for a religious ritual and say, Lord. Or they have this superstitious view of religion that as long as they go through some motions, either some hand motions, sitting up and down, maybe kneeling, uh, partaking of communion, getting baptized, becoming a member, going to the front, saying a prayer, uh, making sure that they give some, some to the church or give to the poor or something like that, that doing those kinds of rituals will appease God and that's all God's concerned about. Otherwise, I've done my duty, and then the rest of the week I can live, live as I please. I can do as I please. And God's happy with me because I just did what was necessary to appease Him. So I do what's necessary to appease Him, and then I live the way I want to live, 
and everything will turn out just fine and swell in the end. The day of judgment will, ju will be just fine. And many preachers preach that way to the people. And the people go and listen to them. But it's not according to the Bible. They're not listening to the words of Christ and the authority of Christ. They're not doing according to His words. They're doing according to their own words. In Jeremiah chapter 5, Jeremiah chapter 5 and verse 30, Jeremiah had that problem in his day. In 600 B.C., and Jeremiah's problem is not a unique problem. It's a constant problem. It's a perennial problem that he faced and that we face. Jeremiah 5.30 An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? My, he noticed he called them my people. They're calling him Lord. They're saying we belong to you. We're saying you are, we are your people. But they're really not his people. They don't live up to the name. The prophets and the priests. Today we would say the pastors, the priests, the ministers, the clergymen. They, this is the way they behave. This is what they do. They say things falsely. They say things on their own authority. And not the authority of Christ. Not the authority of the word of Christ. That you ask them what they believe about this or that, and they'll give you what's on the top of their head, on the tip of their tongue. Just like that. Or they'll brush it aside, they'll dodge the question, and they'll move on. They'll do one or the other, but they won't say, what does the Bible teach? They won't take the questioner to the Bible. They won't open the Bible and say, thus says the Lord. They act on their own authority and make the people trust in what the man says, not what the Word of God says. And the people love it. It's not as though... Just the prophets and the priests and the pastors are culpable. They, yes, they are culpable, and they are greater in their culpability, according to James 3.1. But the people, too, they are culpable because they love it, and they'll flock to it, because it's easy, it's comfortable, it's convenient. But notice, verse, verses 46 and 47, And do not do what I say. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts upon them, I will show you whom he is like. And the one who acts upon them, hears the words of Christ, not just any words, but the words of Christ, and acts upon them, obeys them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man who built his house upon a rock. You, you, we don't build houses on sinking sand. We don't build houses on quicksand. We don't build our houses on rivers and, and waters and flowing streams. We don't build them on them. They're going to fall and collapse. You'd be crazy. Nobody does that. Only a fool, only somebody who is so blinded by what he wants to accomplish regardless of the consequences and regardless of the warnings, only he would build his house upon the sand. Only he would uh, build his house upon anything that was unstable. Only he would do that. And why would he do that? Because he's crazy. And crazy people, in the Bible, those who sin are considered insane. In insane people, or, or sinners, are considered insane because they're not looking at reality as it really is. If you were looking at reality as it really is, you'd put faith in facts. But because we don't put our 
faith in real things, we put them in fictions, we're insane. Isn't that what insane people do? People who are beside themselves? They, are, they believe things that aren't true, and they get, all kinds, they get all worked up and anxious about it, and they pursue it head, headlong. That's a crazy man. That's a madman. And he's saying here, if you don't listen to my words and do it, you're just like a madman. Building a house on unstable ground. You have to listen to my words and do my words. Then you will be on sturdy and sound ground. Well, what happens? Well, what's the problem these days? There's a lot of people on this issue. They will say, yes, I believe in Jesus. And some of them will even make this assertion that they just believe the red letters of Jesus, or they especially believe the red letters of Jesus. Some of our English Bibles have red letter editions which point out when Jesus is speaking and they think that it has greater worth or greater authority or greater applicability to them or exclusive applicability and authority to them, one or the other, they think. But I would challenge any of you, anybody, if you read those red letters alone, the people who claim to have the, them as their greater authority or exclusive authority really don't believe those red letters. They don't live according to that. They don't believe according to that. Not at all. Whatsoever. It's actually, if I may phrase it this way, if they read those red letters and studied them very carefully, studiously, they would come to hate Jesus. It's the Jesus they hate. They think they love Him. They think they know Him. But they would actually hate Him for the things He says and expects them to believe and expects them to do. They would want nothing to do with Him. And if Jesus were saying those red letters right here in our day and age, the vast majority of people would spit in His face, punch Him in the face, take a sword to His gut, put him on the cross, throw stones at him, go burn him alive. They do all kinds of stuff to him. This is what they would do. That's what the people did in his generation. They wanted nothing to do with him. Very few people really wanted to follow him and believe his words and do his words. Very few of them actually wanted to do that. This is where the cha challenge is, to believe in Jesus and the authority that he has. And yes, the red letters are the words of Jesus, the words of the Holy Spirit. They are the words of God. We ought to obey them. But the black letters are there for that reason too. Everything is given by God's inspiration. Everything. All Scripture is inspired by God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God. The words of Jesus, the words of the apostles, and the words of the prophets. They all are. 2 Peter 3, 1 and 2 says, that we ought to remember the, what the Holy Prophets wrote and the commandment of our Lord and Savior uh, through His Apostles. We ought to remember all of that. So let's consider what Jesus says and not, not be those who are mere talk and, and merely are hypocrites who say we believe but we really don't do. Let's humble ourselves and follow the words of Christ faithfully. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.